as you continue to, you know, just study and work and work and, and apply techniques out in the field, um, we're discovering a lot of new new technical ways to take down our vehicles now. Enchanted Sky Media. 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 This is Code Three, the podcast for firefighters. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again. Today, we're discussing extrication techniques. It's easy to get stuck using the same tools and the same methods at every motor vehicle crash. For example, when you need to get a door off, how do you do it? There's more than one good way, and Dalen Zartman is here to explain that and other techniques. Dalen is a technical rescue expert for the Ohio Emergency Management Agency and Department of Homeland Security. He's an instructor for the Central Ohio Strike Team and the Washington Township Fire Department. He's also the founder and president of Rescue Methods. So, Dalen Zarman, welcome to Code 3. Thanks for having me, Scott. Ripping apart a car isn't always easy, but what's changed that makes it harder these days than in the past? So, I think the biggest challenge that we face as um, rescuers and firefighters is keeping up with the technology that's developed in the automotive industry uh, and basically in the metal industry. We're always kind of a step behind where they're at uh, as far as the strengths, the hardness, and the engineering designs behind how they're putting cars together. So I think it's two-phase. Um, the first challenge that we face is, is basically just being a, a studious um, you know, follower of what's going on in the industry so that you're always up to speed on modern-day vehicle construction. It makes a big impact on how we dismantle vehicles. So the deeper your understanding is of how the cars are put together, where the spot welds are at, where the strong points are in the vehicle and where the weak points are in the vehicle, the better you're going to be at problem solving uh, when you need to dismantle the car. So I, I think that's the first phase is, is you can't just get by on instinctive analysis anymore. You've really got to be focused on on um, on understanding all the engineering and design features behind vehicles. I think the second phase is just those features in and of themselves. So, you know, we rely heavily not just upon our own aptitude uh, and understanding of the vehicles, but we rely heavily upon equipment. So the things that we have access to, whether it's hydraulic tools or electric tools or recips or air, you know, pneumatic style tools, we are we're trying to apply those. Uh, and in order for them to be effective, they typically have to be at least commensurate with what we're trying to tear apart. So hardened body steel in particular, uh, and the way that steel is assembled makes it increasingly challenging each year for our hydraulic tools to be effective at dismantling those cars. That puts a big financial burden, uh, I think, on organizations as well, because nobody's really in a position to buy a brand new cutter every year. But I, I know on the on the tool side, at least with hydraulics, the push is always to come up with a stronger, faster, lighter, uh, you know, cutter and spreader application annually so that you're always trying to, to keep pace with, with, with what you're going to be challenged with out in the field. 
So what that means in a lot of cases is that you can't just shove a hearse tool between the door and the pillar and spread it anymore. Yeah, it's, it's not that straightforward. You're, you're very right in that, Scott. Um, one of the neat things that we're discovering is as they redesign tips on hydraulic tools, um, the working surfaces on those tips are becoming a lot more aggressive. That design feature is primarily designed to counteract hardened body steel that's play, being placed on vehicles. So in spreaders in particular, um, you know, the, the reinforced steel on cars is not just interior components and structural components. It's body panels now in a lot of cases. And when you're trying to grab uh, or push against, you know, an A post on a door like you're describing, Whereas uh, you'd be really focused on being perpendicular with all your pushes of the spreader. Now with the new tip designs that are that have a lot of friction points on them, you can actually push at angles. And, and what you can find is a lot of times analyzing how your hinge is put together instead of just trying to drive just pure raw force between the A-post and the door and, and just dismantle the whole, whole hinge. A lot of times now you've got to really analyze how that hinge is assembled. And if you could put your spreaders on an angle and, and create downward forces rather than just lateral forces, kind of find 45-degree angles on all those pushes, the pushes are becoming a lot more effective. So what we thought was initially, you know, a, a big challenge to overcome with the hardened body steels and the strength of, of all the resistance points, now because of the tips, what normally would have been a bad placement of the spreader is actually becoming an advantageous spreader. Uh, I'm playing around with all kinds of new concepts where a lot of times with, with the right kind of spreader and the right kind of tips, I can use one spread movement now pushing down a kind of a 45-degree angle just below or just above the top hinge on the door, and I can almost clear both hinges and the nader pin or the latch assembly with one spread. So as you continue to you know just study and work and work and, and apply techniques out in the field, um, we're discovering a lot of new new technical ways to do takedowns on vehicles now because of the tip design and the, and the the innovations that are coming into tools that over the last like year I'd say. How do you how do you perfect these techniques? Given that the vehicles typically available for training are older and don't have the reinforced steel, don't have the safety features that current vehicles do have. That's a big challenge, and I, I think it creates a lot of false expectations for end users around the country or around the globe, for that matter. Uh, when you're consistently cutting on antiquated stuff that comes out of a junkyard or, or, or spreading on antiquated stuff, you develop a sense of confidence in what your tool capability is. And then when you have a real event and you're confronted with a modern-day vehicle, all of a sudden your tools don't perform. So I think the challenge is when you have access to vehicles um, that are older and they're the cars that you're going to cut on and spread on, you try to apply techniques that you think theoretically are going to be what's required out on, you know, modern day vehicles. You do a lot of study and a lot of reading to find out what's out there and what you're, what you're going to encounter. And then you, you try to work on the foundational principles of, of newer techniques, newer concepts, newer push angles, all of the rest of those components, so that when you are confronted with a new car, you at least understand the concept of if my tool does not work effectively in a traditional format, I've seen this and I've done this um, and, and I can apply it now and, and hopefully it's going to get me through it. We, we've definitely got a, you know, a common approach um, to all rescue sequences, which is you can never rely on plan A. So we're, 
but I'm a big believer in having multiple contingency plans that include multiple tool systems and tool platforms so that when you do hit, you know, kind of that brick wall with your first, uh, you know, maybe two or three attempts at a technique, a concept or a tool system, you've got another another approach in your back pocket that you can pull out quickly and go to. Um, and then, you know, working with local manufacturers, um, wherever you're at, if you can talk to your local car dealerships, if you are in close proximity to any of the, the manufacturing plants um, and insurance companies as well are good resources to try and develop a, a network with so that when they do get newer cars in, whether they're, you know, their repos or their salvage claims or whatever they are, if you can go to those holding lots and work on some of those newer cars, a lot of times the insurance companies are great about um, working with their local municipal responders to, to try and help give them opportunities to work on newer vehicles. Now, extrication, and I think you'd agree with this, could be considered problem solving. How often do people get trapped into thinking the same techniques will work for every situation when really we need to be looking at different techniques for different vehicles. Yeah, that's a, that's a very strong assessment and a very accurate one, Scott. I think that the important thing in education with rescuers is understanding the whys behind the hows. So too many times when we train firefighters or, or train as, as companies on company-level drills, we're trying to duplicate a specific technique without really understanding the rationale behind uh, why that technique is supposed to be effective. So I think as rescuers, if we can dig a little bit deeper uh, and analyze uh, not just the end goal and the specific steps of the technique, but but what the purposes are behind the technique, how you're moving the metal apart and why, that's going to make you a lot more effective problem solver on scene. I've never seen two cars perform exactly the same. Um, so metal is always going to do different things based on how it's been impacted and, and what the extrication or, or what the, the accident actually provides up for you. And um, you do, you've, you've got to be able to analyze all those components and figure out better ways to, to work through that material. Same thing with the limitations on tools. You know, a perfect example is just making hinge cuts. Uh, and I always try to communicate this when we're talking about cutter applications with hydraulic tools. If you've got a, a hinge assembly or any type of steel assembly, and let's say that it's a, a two-inch tall piece of material and, and it's a quarter-inch thick, if you approach that uh, from a perpendicular perspective with your hydraulic cutter and you're trying to cut that material, you're trying to cut two inches of resistance with a quarter-inch of blade. Uh, and your cutter may be strong enough to, to penetrate that and, and shear that and make that cut. But if your cutter bogs down, simply taking the time to reorient your tool so that it's traveling straight up or straight down now puts the blades in a position that you're cutting a quarter inch of resistance with two inches of blade surface. So in, in just taking the time to look at the material you're trying to cut, especially once it's been smashed in a rack, it may reorient things to where your typical approach for a technique uh, almost always has to be tweaked slightly your angles change, your approaches change, and you're just always looking at maximizing uh, contact points for the tool and reducing resistance points that you're that you're trying to manipulate. Since you brought it up, let's talk about speed for a moment. A rescuer always wants to get in and save the victim as fast as possible, but does it sometimes pay to slow down in your process? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I spent eight years in the Marine Corps, so there's a, an adage that we use, which is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Um, that's that's kind of the approach you want to use. And there's always a fine line. Um, the sense of urgency on any technical rescue event always has to be driven by the victim. So I think we're always analyzing the victim's condition and our ability to support them uh, to keep them in a viable rescue profile, not a recovery profile. So there are definitely unique runs where, uh, you know, you, you've really got to be, you really got to be pushing the pace. Um, but anytime we're pushing the pace, those are usually the highest potentials or, or opportunities for mistakes, injuries, um, and misapplied, you know, approaches. So when you step back and you can, you can really analyze the scenario and just move at a, a smooth pace, um, with a sense of urgency that's commensurate with what your victim is providing you. Uh, that's when you're going to be most effective. Um, the golden hour philosophy is always the driving, kind of the driving benchmark uh, where, where I operate on our heavy rescue. We always try to compress our actual extrication time to less than 10 minutes. That's always our kind of our golden rule uh, from time of arrival on scene to victim out of the vehicle. And by all means, there are runs where we slow down a little bit. We take a little more time as the risk factor increases. Um, you want to make sure that you're being methodical about making sure you get everything done correctly. You know, I've been to scenes where there is a screaming victim trapped in the vehicle, and I'm curious if that doesn't drive some people to try to move faster, maybe faster than they should to get the person out. Yeah, it does, absolutely, Scott. We had a run just the other day where we had an individual uh, trapped under the vehicle, face down underneath the front axle. Uh, they couldn't breathe and they were, you know, actively kicking their legs and, and just screaming and, and, and really expressing emotionally how desperately they needed out from under the vehicle. Uh, and, and I watched, the, I watched our crew work as we were progressing. Uh, and I could immediately recognize how much that impacted the sense of urgency for our personnel, which is a great thing. But on the downside, um, we had to kept doing, I had to keep doing systematic, hey, stop, slow down and, and redo this or stop, slow down and redo that. So uh, wheel chocks were initially ne neglected. The the base level um, cribbing and wedge pack stabilization under the vehicle was a little bit neglected. So everybody was so quick to go right to the lifting element that a lot of the foundational pieces that were required to do a safe lift um, we're kind of getting overlooked because everybody was in such a hurry to get the load off of the victim. So it is, I think it's a really tough, it's a really tough balance when you, when you integrate the kind of the psychological status of a victim that's really in need, um, and rescuers who really want to help and, and be effective and successful at the rescue. It, it's really hard to take, you know, take a breath and make sure that you are operating smoothly and efficiently. Um, while 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 being quick and maintaining the right levels of, of safety and, and good fundamentals in your rescue sequence. What is the one biggest mistake that anyone experienced or probably makes when they face a tough extrication? Uh, I'd say if you were to try and create an umbrella statement for it, uh, it would probably be communications and analysis. So I think when we get off the rig, if you don't have kind of a systematic approach about Who's going to do the assessment? Who's going to do the initial stabilization? Who's going to establish tools? Who's going to have formulas um, kind of for assignments and tool loads about how the guys go about approaching the rescue, I think helps a lot. And if you've got 
repetitive, um, you know, SOPs, SOGs, uh, formulas about how you go about your business for the things that are going to get duplicated on almost every run. It makes it challenging because you immediately require uh, lots of communications that that shouldn't necessarily be required. If you train together a lot as a crew, then then you you have the ability to kind of operate independently all towards a common goal. And the only time communications are required is when you need to deviate from what the plan is already established as. I think that helps a lot. When you see crews that just get off the rig and just kind of everybody goes to work without a common plan or a common goal, um, that's when things start to break down immediately. So everybody's analyzing things differently. Everybody gets tunnel vision on different elements of, of what they feel compelled to accomplish. Right, and, and so they're all thinking that what they're doing is right, but those things may all be working at counter-purposes to each other. Yes, sir. Yeah, exactly. And every everything that everybody's thinking may be, may be great, but if they're not all on the same page, then nothing comes together and, and it just ends up being a disaster. All right. Great advice. Dalen Zartman, thanks for joining us on Code 3. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate you having me. We've put the link to Dalen's website and other information on our website. Find it at Code3Podcast.com slash MBA. Check it out. Now, here's Holly. We need your help, but it'll be easy. Just go to wherever you got this podcast and leave us a rating and review. It'll only take a minute, but it will help other listeners find us. Why do you care? Because the more people who listen, the bigger our community becomes. And the bigger our community, the better Code 3 becomes. It's kind of like the brotherhood itself. So when you get a second, leave us a rating and quick review. And thanks. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more. I'm Scott Orrin. Until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.